Hey, good morning, North Boulevard. Thanks for coming this morning. Those of you online, really glad to have you today. Uh, great crowd, a lot of enthusiasm. And I'm going to jump right into our text, which is Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 19, 20, 21, and then we're going to move on. I want to start by telling just a quick story. When I was preaching in Overland Park, Kansas, one of our members was John Browning. Browning was six foot six, 275 pounds. And for, uh, I think, nine years, he was the lead defensive tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. Had something like 115 tackles, 25 assists. And I want to say he had, uh, let's see, 27 sacks. In fact, I think he might have met Kelly Holcomb, our own uh, uh, NFL quarterback, one time behind the line of scrimmage. Um, We'll have to ask Kelly about that. So uh, he was actually a very quiet individual, but I mean, like he was as ripped as you have ever seen. And uh, just like he was pure muscle. I remember one time, I don't remember if it was a potluck or some kind of gathering or something right after services. We were all sitting there eating. I looked up and John Browning was cleaning off tables and throwing away the um, disposable plates and cups. It just struck me that day. How odd it is to see a guy who makes millions of dollars in the NFL who just, you know, is clearly the strongest man in the room with maybe one possible exception, who would actually be out there like like cleaning tables. And I've just thought a lot about that. That's a beautiful picture of a word that we don't really like, but it's a good word, the word submission. He didn't clean tables because um, he felt obligated. He didn't clean tables because he was weak or had low self-esteem. I'm pretty sure he didn't have low self-esteem. He didn't clean tables because he needed the money. Uh, He didn't clean tables because he had been beat down or he felt like he really had no particular worth in life. He cleaned tables voluntarily because he understood that by so doing, he was honoring Christ. It's not a word we like, and I've spent hours trying to figure out a better word for today's lesson, and I just can't find it. So I'm going to bounce around with some words, but I want you to see that our text is governed by a very simple but profound virtue that God wants each of us to practice. It's the virtue of submission. It's not a very good English word, but I just can't think of a good replacement Here's how Paul puts it, Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So everything we say today is premised on this virtue, mutual submission. And I want you to understand, this is going to be a lesson about each one of us submitting to all the others. We're accustomed in Ephesians 5 to hearing about wives submitting to husbands. We'll get to that in just a second. But you should know that every relationship listed, and six relationships are listed in this text, every relationship listed is actually expected to be governed by mutual submission. So husbands are to submit to their wives every bit as much as wives submit to their husbands. Parents and children submit to one another. Masters and slaves, we'll talk about that later. They are both to submit to each other. It's not a one-way street. That's because submission is one of the virtues that makes the Christian faith Christian. In fact, if you look at the grammar of Ephesians chapter 5, going back to verse 18, it's peculiar in Greek. It's not easily translated into English. Normally, I wouldn't bother you with Greek, but let me just say that what we have is a command in the Greek language followed by four participles. Now, in Grammatically speaking, that means that the participles describe how you are to fulfill the command. If I say, go to the store, 
taking this money with you. That's a participle phrase. Taking this money with you tells you how I want you to go to the store. So what we get in this text is verse 18, the commandment is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there are four participles that tell you how to do it. The first one, speak to one another in song. The second one, praise. I don't know why I put praise and praising, but I did. Praising God. The third one is giving thanks to God. And the fourth way that you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit is by submitting each of us to one another. Those are four ways to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you were to translate it, this is my translation, here's how you would translate it. Be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, slaves to masters, and masters to slaves. And I just want you to see again that submission or perhaps a word, the closest word I could get is the word respect. But submission is a Christian virtue. It is a lifestyle for us. Not out of weakness. I'll talk about what it's not in a second. But out of strength. And so we read texts like this. The land submits to God. The soul submits in God. In fact, Psalm 62 is a great psalm because in the Hebrew language, which is the language that the psalm was originally written in, we read that we are to have our souls rest in God. And when the Greeks got hold of that, they used the word submission. That's because when you submit to God, you can rest. You're, you're safe in his hands. Jesus submitted to his parents. Christians submit to the government. Uh, Jesus submits to the Father. Church members submit to their leaders. Young men are to submit to old men. You see the pattern. Submission is a Christian virtue. It's not a popular virtue in America. just saw a Comcast commercial the other day, and it said, uh, so I wrote it down because I, I knew I'd forget it. Oh, success is about standing out, not fitting in. Perfect in America, isn't it? It's just not biblical. That actual success occurs in Scripture when we practice mutual submission for the sake of Christ. And let me make sure you understand what I'm not talking about. Because in America, when we hear the word submission, we generally think of a lot of negative things. Biblical submission is not a form of weakness. Again, my friend John Browning was not cleaning tables because he was a weak person. Neither is submission in the Bible having low self-esteem. Um, I'm just really sure Browning didn't have low self-esteem. I'm really sure he didn't. Uh, it's, it, this isn't something that we do because we don't think very highly of ourselves. Submission is not being worth less either, by the way. We really want to underscore this, that submission is not, I'm just not as good as you are, so I'll do all the dirty work. That's not what submission is. Submission is done out of a position of strength, not a position of weakness. And lastly, submission is not helplessly suffering abuse. Submission is not being a victim. Submission is choosing through strength. Well, I'll put it up here. It's choosing through strength to respect the roles in which you find yourself and then using them for the purpose of Christ. So I have a boss. I actually have 10 bosses at North Boulevard. Well, I have 2,500 bosses. All of you are my bosses. And then you've delegated the direct supervision of me to the elders. So I have 10 bosses. Uh, they don't think that they're better people than I am, and I don't think I'm a worse person than they are, but I'm happy to submit to them because through submission, we can advance the cause of Christ. If you play on a team, let's say a football team, and you play a certain position on the football team, let's say it's right guard because that's probably the least glamorous position on a football team. You don't think to yourself, well, I'm just not worth very much. I've got low self-esteem. No, you understand that you have a particular role to play. You play it well, and the whole team excels as a result. 
That's what the Bible wants us to know about submission. When we understand our roles and then we serve them for the sake of Christ, everybody flourishes. And so when we look at this text, the one we're about to look at, we see six different social roles. And in each of these, the governing principle is submission. I just want to make sure we hear this. Because if I'm a woman, already in this sermon, I'm getting just a little anxious. Because I have to be thinking, oh my goodness, this is that text that I hope he would never preach on. Me being submissive to my husband. Which is a, must surely be a frightening thing. Look, it must be frightening to a lot of women. It's frightening to me to think that some of our men might be in control of some of our women. That is not what Paul's going to argue, and I'm really going to underscore that. Paul is teaching the principle of mutual submission. Every, verse 21, everybody submits to everybody else for the sake of the team. Wives submit to their husbands by respecting them. Husbands respect to their, submit to their wives by loving them. Children submit to their parents by obeying and honoring them. Parents submit to their children by training them in Christ and not being harsh with them. Slaves submit to their masters by respecting them and giving them honest work. Masters submit to their slaves by respecting them, giving them honest work, and then not being intimidating to them. Let's look at our text, and let's see what it is that Paul has to say, starting at verse 21. And again, I do want to say, this is actually a participle, even though the English translations give it to you more as a command. It's really not a command in the Greek language. It's a participle that describes how you are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit by submitting to one another. And I've underscored this phrase because this is the controlling phrase for us. I am submissive because of Jesus. So that's really worth pointing out. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands, not because their husbands deserve it, because in many cases their husbands don't deserve it. And husbands are to love their wives, not because their, lives are so, their wives are so lovable. Husbands love their wives because of who Christ is. We practice submission because we're on Christ's team. Children obey their parents not just because they're, well, in fact, many parents aren't good. But you honor your parents not because they're good. You do it because of Christ. You're on his team. This is how you play on the team of Christ. Employers and employees honor one another, not necessarily because they're great bosses or great employees, but because you're on Christ's team. Everything that we're about to say is qualified by this concept. You do it for the reverence of Christ. There is a Latin term that I wish we had time to develop, but we don't. It's a Latin term, pieta or pietas. When the, when the Romans wanted to think about what it meant to be a citizen, they often spoke about patriotism as you received unearned benefits from growing up in the Roman Empire. Wealth, prestige, honor, the ability to travel, the Pax Romana, all these things were given to you just by virtue of being born. You got them. And the proper response is immense gratitude or pietas, as they would say. Immense gratitude, a recognition that I got all of this and didn't earn a bit of it. In the same way, Paul is arguing that we should look at the world submissively because of what God has given us, because of who Christ is. I get all of this, and now I should respond accordingly. I should play my role. So, first he deals with wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Again, let me just pause and say the word submit is given us in the English translations, but it actually doesn't occur in the original language. Instead, the original language says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ's wives to their husbands. 
And then it goes to the husbands next. Let's keep reading. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So we're going to wrap up verse, uh, chapter 5 in just a second, and you're going to see the way that the wife submits to the husband. Paul articulates it in the very last verse of chapter 5. Here it is. The wife shows her husband respect. So at the end of the day, women, your simple job description, your one word job description is to respect your husband. By the way, it's beautiful because the scriptures know that this is one of the greatest needs a man has. I mean, women need to be respected as well, but I really do think there's something biological about a man. A man, many men, feel as though the whole world is trying to eat their lunch. Uh, for a man, it's, it's a constant struggle to care for all these people uh, who depend upon us. And we men come home at the end of the day feeling beat up, uh, feeling trashed, always concerned that we might not measure up. And the one thing a man craves is a woman who respects him. And so God in his infinite wisdom says to the women, here's your one way of submitting, your one word job description, respect your husband. Let me just pause and ask you women the question, why do you respect your husbands? Is it because he's respectable? I wouldn't answer if he's sitting next to you. No, it's because of your pietas towards Christ. It's because you are so grateful to who Jesus Christ is that you respect that man even if he's not respectable. Now he goes to the uh, husbands. And by the way, I do think it odd that it only takes like two verses to give the wives their job description. It takes like six verses to give a man his job description. And it basically is one word, but Paul just has to say it over and over again, probably because men are already like drifting off in their minds. So I have to keep calling them back to it. But here we go. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So you're already seeing what Paul's one word job description for the man is. Just as the wife shows respect for the husband, the man loves the wife. And it is unqualified. Unqualified. You love your wife whether she is lovable or not. You see, it doesn't depend on what she does. This doesn't say love your wives as long as they're lovely. Love your wives as long as they make you happy. Love your wives as long as uh, they satisfy your needs and your desires. That's not what he says. It is a one-word, unqualified job description. You respect that man, wives, and husbands, you love that woman. That's it, one word. And even having a one-word job description is hard for a lot of us. So Paul goes on. Quoting from Genesis to remind us that God actually had an eternal plan in this. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. I just want you to see that Paul thinks of marriage as probably the best metaphor for Christ and the church. 
So he says, I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you, verse 33 is really important because it just gives us our job description in nuce, as they say in Latin, in a nutshell. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Now, at the West Campus at Smyrna Laverne, we have the, the uh, campus ministers are doing the preaching today. And we met this week and we talked about this text. And one of the things that I said to them is, do not be ashamed to preach this text. But I'm going to tell you why you might feel ashamed. Why a lot of ministers don't want to touch this. It's because this text sounds so outdated to tell a woman to submit to a man. It's frightening we're afraid that if a seeker comes in, they'll hear it and they'll say, man, that's just what I thought. That's what I thought they were doing. In fact, didn't we just have a Supreme Court nominee hearing in which they were accusing this person of belonging to a church that submits women to men? I want you to know that when we rightly understand this text, it is beautiful. Now, here to help me unpack it, is our own Renee Sproles. I want to ask Renee to come up. Renee, we got some new stools. At first service, we had stools that spun and you couldn't put your feet on the ground. So while I was trying to talk to her, I was just spinning around like this. Um, come out and grab a seat. Renee published a book two years ago called On Gender. This is one of the best books on unpacking what the words in this text actually mean. What does it mean to say that a man is a head? Go on, go on I'll join you here in a second. What does it mean to say that the man is the head of the woman? And what does it mean for a woman to submit to a man? And here's what I want to say. I'm going to ask you this question in a minute. When you rightly understand these terms, you will not be embarrassed to bring your friends. In fact, when, you're, when we're finished in the next couple of minutes, every woman in this room would willingly raise your hand and say, I want a piece of that. That's what I want. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Actually, I'm going to throw up this text because Paul says the husband is the head of the wife. And then in Genesis 2.18, uh, Moses had said, it's not good for a man to be alone. And then when making Eve, God says, I'll make, her, make a helper suitable to him. In your book, you make quite a bit out of these two terms as um, like this job descriptions of, of what it looks like for a man to be a head and what it looks for, for a woman to be a helper. Hel help us with the first one. Start with the first one. What do we mean when we say that the husband is the head of the wife? cringe and wiggle. I, don't, I didn't like it. Um, and a lot of times we substitute the word leader for head just because it sounds a little more current. But I think it's a really bad substitute for what scripture is talking about when it talks about head. Um, the best kind of um, help for me was thinking of when Christ is described as our head cornerstone. And a cornerstone is, you know, the corner um, of the building, and it bears the weight of the building and helps all the stones be aligned correctly and rise up and do the work to make a proper building. And so um, in terms of headship, I think that that's what men are called to do. They're called to um, bear the weight of the responsibility of the people in their lives and to um, be sure that everyone has the opportunity to reach their full potential to um, rise up um, into that beautiful building, which is the church of the living God. So, so one of the things that makes your book really, I think, urgently needed today is that you don't deny male headship. Right. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible actually quite a few times. But the problem has right. arisen when men have misunderstood what this meant. So not, not everybody before us, not all of our ancestors, right. but you and I both grew up where at least some 
took male headship to mean I'm the boss, you'll do what I say, and if I put you down, that's not my problem, that's your problem. That's what's led to the problems. But you're interpreting headship to mean my job is what? So you said it in one sentence at first service. Can you remember what you said? Because it's really good. I think I can. I've been thinking about it this weekend since you asked me, what does it mean to be a proper head? Um, it means that you're asking yourself the question, what can I do to help my wife become everything that Jesus has in mind for her to be? Okay, just mic drop for a second. Because that's really worth sinking in. When we understand what male headship is, it is my, I'm Julie's head, it's my helping Julie become everything that God has intended her to become. That's what headship means. It doesn't mean I'm her boss, I'm not her Lord, it doesn't mean she has to do everything I say, it means that I have a job submitting in love to helping her become everything God designed her to be, right? Yes. Okay, That's now before you, I'm going to ask you a couple more, but before we do, don't raise your hand physically, but raise the hand of your heart. How many women would like a piece of that? Having a man who says, my job is to help you become everything God designed you to be. See, that's not scary. No. It's, it's scary when we misunderstand it. Mm -hmm. It's scary when men dominate, when men, are, when men do everything that Paul said don't do. Mm -hmm. and, and then we call, call that headship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, headship does carry with it responsibility and there's privileges um, that um, headship carries, but they're only in the context of those grave responsibilities as and, well. And I know also in your book, you mentioned that you've had two heads in your life and both mm -hmm. of them did that. They helped you to flourish and um, they are, yeah. uh, who were they again? <laughs> my husband and my dad and really my grandfather as well. Um, it's just been a real blessing to me. And I realized the more um, discipleship I did with young women that we're, we have epidemic proportions of poor headship or no headship. And I want for other people what I've been blessed with. So men, when you're married, you are the head of your woman. It doesn't say head of the house, by the way. No, women the, are the masters of the that's home. Right. The, the First Timothy chapter. First Timothy five. No, no, no. First Timothy chapter five <laughs> literally says that. Am I right? Yeah. Is it verse eighteen? It's women are. Verse fourteen. The, um, I don't remember the verse. Yeah. Literally, Paul says, "I command women to be the head of the house." Mm -hmm. So it sounds funny when you say it, but it's not. It's literally in the Bible. Yeah. The man is the head of the woman, and that makes a difference because mm -hmm. when I understand I'm Julie's head, my focus is not being the boss of everybody. My focus is helping her flourish, help her to become everything God wanted her to be. Mm -hmm. So, men, that's your job description. You're supposed to help your wife become everything God designed her to be. You have the strength to do it. We're 25% we're, we're larger than you are, in mm -hmm. some cases more than that. And... Uh, but we actually have that ability to help our wife source. Now, look, we got to, because I got to watch my time. Let's move on to Genesis 2.18, where God says that he created woman to be the helper. Now, when I hear that, I want to, it makes me think, you know, that Julie is daddy's little helper. Or, you know, she's just there to help me out, get whatever I want. Yeah. In your book, you make a really good case that that's not what this text is talking about. No, I mean, that was another kind of cringeworthy word for me. I'm like, yuck, yuck, yuck. I don't like that word. But when you really just... God's Word is so beautiful and so good, and we really just need to let it beat us up sometimes and dig in and see what it means. And so um, it says that he created woman to be a helper like his opposite. It's the word um, like his opposite is like when Ishmael went and sat down um, across from Hagar. Or she set him across the desert from her. So we're complementary, like wings on an airplane, like your left hand and your right hand. And um, the, the word that's used... Um, again and again in the Old Testament for strong helper is God. 
for Israel. I think 17 times or so in the Old Testament, this word refers to God as Israel's rescuer, Israel's deliverer. God's not Israel's servant or waitress. He's their strong help. And so um, when women don't realize this, they just, they think wrongly of this. They, they're not the strong help they can be for their husbands. Um, and sometimes when men have a wrong idea of helper, they don't utilize the very strong help that God's put in their lives. And I'm not talking about gender stereotypes in terms of, you know, um, a Western American view of how women should be. Chores and that sort Chores of stuff. Chores and all that thing. I'm talking about um, a, a role, an order to relating to each other. And you bring all your unique personality traits to that, the way God made you, and your husband should be um, taking full advantage of them. Okay, so uh, based on, this has to be our last question, but based on this, your study of this word, strong helper, tell the wives here, what is the, what's the job description that emerges from that language? For women to be strong help for their husbands, we should be asking ourselves the question, how can I help my husband become everything God wants for him to be? Day-to-day -day life, that's, what, that's the filter you lay over every one of your actions. How can I help my husband become everything God wants him to be? Mic drop. That's what submission looks like. And all the other stuff, some of which was garbage that we were taught, we need to get rid of it so we can do what this text really teaches. That we, we get married. You married David. I married Julie so I can help her become everything mm -hmm. God wants her to be and so she can help me. Mm -hmm. Tell Renee thank you for this. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Renee. For thank and also, um, not only, uh, not, I just want to recommend not only the book but also... Um, Standing ovation from Sean, that's really cool. Uh, was it the women part or the men part, Sean? Uh, also, I just want to mention that Renee has co-authored six different articles on this for Renew.org that are really good art articles that I think will be bound up and published eventually. So, we had to pause to do that. It took, a, a, you know, the bulk of my time, but I think it's really important. Here's why. Because this text is a beautiful text and one which we must teach because our marriages desperately need this truth. And there are churches that are afraid to teach what this text says. It's because they don't understand it. We want to be the people of God. And so we have clear understanding that whatever social role I find myself in, I will use it for the sake of Christ. Now, we have to keep moving. We'll move quickly now. So Paul then turns to children and parents. He says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So back in the Ten Commandments, God says to the children, obey your parents and you'll live a long life. That's what he means. That's the first commandment that actually had a promise with it. Then he turns to the fathers or parents. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. To exasperate a child is to be harsh with them, to make them want to give up. And I just want to say, we parents really need to ask hard questions about this because I do a lot of ministerial counseling. This is a serious problem. And there are men in this audience, I'm not trying to pick on you, and there are some women in this audience You've been so harsh with your kids, they just want to give up. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't create an environment where your kids can't win. You need to be, you know, for every correction you give, you ought to find 20 things that are great. So you don't exasperate them. Then Paul turns to a very difficult subject, and one which we'll make some comments on and then we'll be done. Slaves and masters. Wow, you didn't see that coming, did you? Here's what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters 
with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if, you, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good, each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. So I'll just stop and say this. Why is it that slaves are to obey their masters? Why? Because they're going to get whipped if they don't. Why? Why should slaves obey their masters? Paul answers it. Because of reverence for Christ. We do this out of our respect for Christ. You serve in any social role in which you find yourself for the cause of Christ. You're not doing it because he's a great boss. You're not doing it because they're great employees. You're doing it because you already swore allegiance to Christ. Then he turns to masters. This is our last verse. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I just want to note this. Masters have to do exactly the same thing for slaves that slaves are taught to do for masters in this text. Masters aren't off the hook. By the way, this was revolutionary in the Roman world of Paul to say to a master, you've got to do exactly the same kind of submission that a slave has to do. It was revolutionary to hear that. Do not threaten them since you know that uh, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Paul's saying to the master, I just want to make sure you know you've got a master and he's watching everything you do. Now, Surely you have a question about slavery in the Bible. What's going on here? I'll give you just a very quick response. I want you to understand something about slavery in the Bible because this is actually it's a big deal. The new atheists uh, uh, from the last uh, decade or so, the Chris Hitchens of the world and others, have said, see, the Bible condones slavery, so therefore you shouldn't believe the Bible. Well, they misunderstand what the Bible's saying, which... At times it's easy to do, and sometimes people just have ugly motives, and they deliberately misunderstand. I want you to know that slavery, as we use the word, was always wrong in Scripture, and not only always wrong, it was a grave evil. So when you hear the word slavery in the English language, it's always wrong. In fact, not only is it wrong, but I want you to listen to this text. In 1 Timothy chapter 9, Paul's talking about why God gave us a law. And Paul says, God gave us a law. And he said, let me think of all the worst things I can think of that a person can do. That's why God gave us a law. And look at some of the things he lists. People who kill their mother and their father. People who are murderers. And he says, and people who deal in slaves. They're the worst people on planet earth. So I'm just making sure you understand that the American experience of slavery was always condemned in the Bible and not just condemned, but in Exodus chapter 21, anyone who steals another person is to be put to death, that the American South deserved the death penalty for what it did. You just need to, we need to be honest about that. The idea that you can capture another human being especially based on their race, force them into slavery was always wrong. And in the Bible, you deserve the death penalty for doing it. The South deserved to lose and we should not celebrate it. It was evil. The Bible always taught that all the way back to the book of Exodus. But you should also know that there are other terms in the Bible that are your that the word slavery in the Bible often doesn't mean what we mean when we say slavery. Let me just illustrate it because there are texts in the Bible that seem to condone slavery and you have to ask yourself the question, why? Why would it do? Why would it condone such an evil? And the answer is, unfortunately, there's only one word, but there are three different models. Here's one model. 
We would say indentured servitude, but that's a bad phrase now in English as well. Contractual work between financial unequals. So oftentimes in the Bible, when uh, people, when money was scarce, people would contract for work for a long period of time, like tenant farmers in the middle 20th century in the U.S., where you would contract with the owner of a farm, you would get 40 acres, you plowed the acres, and then you gave him part of the proceeds. Or here's an example. Imagine I want to go to medical school, but I don't have the money for it. So I sign up for the U.S. Marine Corps. They give me a quarter of a million dollars and pay my way through medical school. By the way, I'm thinking about doing that. I just want you to know. When I finish medical school, what does the Marine Corps expect of me? Ten years of my life. That's right. I signed a contract with them. That's what the word slavery often means in the Bible. It means I've signed a contract to work for you for ten years to pay off a debt. That's not what we think of when we hear the word slavery. And that's one reason why there's such a problem. In fact, I want you to know about this, that oftentimes in the Bible, people loved that relationship so much they didn't want to leave it. So the Bible had to make provision for all the people who said, I like the Marine Corps. My 10 years are up, but I don't want to leave. What you would do is go down and they would pierce your ear. And that pierced ear was a sign that you've now decided I'm going to stay in the Marine Corps until the, for the rest of my life. Okay, the Bible uses the same word for that that it does for the ugly word slavery. And that causes confusion for us, but it's not the same. Then there is yet a third way that we have this word used in the Bible, and it would be either imprisonment or an internment camp. So let me again, just to explain it, you have to go back to the ancient world. Maintaining prisons is very expensive. Like we know that in the U.S. In a world of scarcity, they could not afford to build prisons and staff them. So if you committed a crime, oftentimes you had to serve your sentence as a slave. In the same way that if you commit a crime in the U.S., you are a slave to the penal system. It's not evil. It's punishment. And then you would be released afterwards. In fact, in Israel, every seven years, slaves were released. Yeah, it was mandatory. That way, there was sort of a stopgap against injustice. Imagine if you go to war. Let's take the Second World War. We go, we capture POWs on the battlefield. What do you do with them? Do you say, well, I think slavery's wrong. Y'all go back. We'll fight you again if you want. No, you put them in an internment camp. Well, in antiquity, they didn't have the money for internment camps. So when you caught enemies on the battlefield, you took them home. They became slaves. It was an internment camp. Again, we wish there weren't war. We wish none of this had to happen. But since it does happen, it's not evil, not inherently so. I just want you to understand that because there's a lot of problem over what the Bible says about slavery. And you just need to know that it's a bigger word than what we mean when we say it. And so you need to be able to say the two following things. Slavery as we know it is always wrong. And second, oftentimes in the Bible, the word that is translated slavery doesn't mean slavery. That'll help you if you remember those two principles. Now, let's finish up. Because this text is not just a theory. It's not just theology. This is a practical text. And it really gives us a big ask, a big question, which is just this. How can I use whatever social role in which I find myself for the cause of Christ? Here's my answer. Write a job description. If you're a husband, well, let me just walk through them. If you're a wife... Write yourself a new job description. And, and by the way, why are you going to do this? Because your husband's such a good guy. No, that's not the answer. You're going to do it because you are allegiant to Jesus Christ. That's why you do it. 
We're doing this for Christ. Remember Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not out of reverence for him. So wives, go home and write a new job description on how you're going to honor your husband from now on. Husbands, go home and write a new job description. This is how I'm going to love my wife from now on. And it's not conditional, unconditional. Children, go home and say, I'm going to obey and honor my parents regardless of if I agree with them or not. This is what I'm going to do. It's unconditional. Why? Because I chose Christ. Now that you chose Christ, live consistent with it. Parents, go home and say, because I follow Christ, I'm not going to be harsh with my kids anymore, and I'm going to train them to know the Lord. Employees, that's our best analogy. That's our best analogy for slave masters because today we don't have those models. Employees, go home and write a job description and say, whether I like my job or not doesn't matter. I'm going to do it well, I'm going to be focused, and I'm going to respect my employer. And how about this? If you're a supervisor, a boss, an employer, you go home and you say, everything that I'm asking my employee to do, I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm not going to intimidate them. Intimidation is no longer in my vocabulary. I don't do that anymore. When we do this, we are using the social roles God has assigned to us for the glory of Christ. Do you see everything in this text? Everything in Ephesians was meant to be lived on the street. It's not high-minded philosophy. It's expected to be lived in my relationships, real life and real relationships where I really do what the Bible says. And when I do that, guess what happens? We go all the way back to 5 and verse 18. Guess what happens when I do that? Guess what happens? You remember what Paul says? He says, uh, speaking to one another in the psalms, sing spiritual songs, sing and make a melody in your heart, being grateful in all things, submitting to one another out of fear of Christ. What do those all qualify? The command was this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. When you do what this text teaches, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's something to be proud of. As I said, which woman wouldn't want a husband who says, my job is to love you and help you become everything God designed you to be. Which man wouldn't want to hear a wife say, I am committed to respecting and honoring you and I'm going to help you become everything God designed you to be. Who doesn't want that? So the scriptures are beautiful. They're right and they're always true. And as followers of Jesus, it's a privilege for us to follow them. So if we can help you make that commitment, you tell us how. We'll stand up right now and we'll sing.